0: Sometimes, sometimes little decisions have enormous unintended consequences. Some of history's most noteworthy events were spurned on by small, seemingly inconsequential decisions that exploded in significance shortly after. For example, the Black Plague which decimated Europe in the Middle Ages, leading to the deaths of over 100 million people from Asia to Sweden. Um, the plague spread west with traders from Asia via fleas that traveled on rats. These rats had at one time been curbed by a large population of cats in medieval cities. However, the Pope at the time, Pope Gregory IX, hated cats and even published a manuscript called The Vox in Rama, which among other things declared black cats to be the incarnation of Satan, which is a belief that lives on today in my wife, Angie. She kind of hates cats very much, but... Being the most powerful figure on the continent, his call to ban all black cats and most cats in general led to a booming population of rats carrying the bubonic plague into the cities of 12th century Europe. Um, So one seemingly inconsequential piece of bad theology that cats are Satan led to the death of millions. Or there's the story of a tiny choice that led to one of the most famous disasters, infamous disasters in the past few centuries, and that's the, the sinking of the Titanic. There's no one person to blame for the sinking of Titan. In fact, there was this general arrogance among all people involved with the Titanic that led to it failing. There weren't enough lifeboats, and they said it was unsinkable. Well, guess what? It sunk. Um, So there's no one person to blame. Many people made bad choices that resulted in the deaths of, of many hundreds of people. But there was one tiny event in particular that played a role that I want to highlight. Second officer David Blair was removed from his duty just minutes before the ship was set to cross the Atlantic. In the hasty switch, however, Officer Blair forgot to hand over the keys to a supply locker that contained the ship's set of binoculars. And this meant that the crew was relegated to searching the frigid, icy waters uh, at night for icebergs unaided by anything but the human eye. And we all know how that turned out. That small decision to remove Officer Blair and his small forgetting to turn over the tiny key that opened the small locker with a simple piece of naval equipment contributed to the death of over 1,500 people. There are similar small, seemingly inconsequential choices that led to the beginning of World War I, the invention of penicillin, the success of D-Day in World War II, the prevention of worldwide nuclear holocaust in 1983, and the tearing down of the Berlin Wall. And I can share some of those little tiny events that led to those enormous events after the service, if you'd like. But I want to share one more story of a small decision with enormous results. Um, Perhaps you're familiar with The Day the Music Died. Is anybody familiar with that, The Day the Music Died? Yeah, it's part of the lyrics to American Pie. But who died on The Day the Music Died? That was what music historians call the 1959 plane crash that claimed the lives of Buddy Holly, Richie Valens of La Bamba fame, and the Big Bopper, uh, J.P. the Big Bopper Richardson. Each man was on this rocket-like trajectory to fame and fortune until that fateful tragedy. But do you know what small event precipitated that tragedy? Originally, the three artists were scheduled to take a bus to their next show in Minnesota. They had been traveling around all over on the road. They'd been on the road for for many weeks, and so they had run out of clean clothes. And so Buddy Holly had, had convinced them to skip the bus ride and instead charter a flight so they had more time to do their laundry. Making the day the music died the most tragic case of dirty underwear in the history of pop culture. One small decision, wanting to wash his clothes, had huge unintended consequences. Always, yeah, mother said, "Can't always keep that spare pair of clean underwear." Um, this phenomenon has existed throughout history and throughout your own lives as well. Often, the choices that we make by accident are the choices that have the most drastic effects and consequences in our life. This is certainly true of our passage today. In Acts 18, Paul is going to go to trial again. Again, this is nothing new. Since Acts 9, which is when Paul is converted to Christianity, since Acts 9, I count eight different cities where Paul was targeted for persecution by the local populace. Right away, as soon as he becomes a Christian in Damascus, he starts preaching and the Jews there try to kill him. So he goes to Jerusalem. The Jews there try to kill him. Then he goes on his first missions trip uh, through Asia Minor, where he was oppressed in Pisidian Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Lystra is where he was stoned nearly to death. They thought he was dead. They tossed him in a ditch somewhere. And lately, on his second missions trip, um, he encountered persecution in Philippi. That's where he was imprisoned before being miraculously released by an angel. Thessalonica, and now Corinth, the city where we find Paul this morning. Moreover, in three of those cities, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Corinth, Paul is forced into a trial in front of a Gentile city leader to defend himself from an antagonistic Jewish population, which is ironic because that had once been Paul. Paul had once been the Jewish antagonizer of Christianity. He had dragged people to court. He had torn apart families and gotten people killed, and now he's the one experiencing all of this. And so when I first read Acts 18, our passage today, and Paul's trial before Gallio in Corinth, I kind of had a feeling of ho hum, just another legal encounter. Look at all, look at this list here. He's gone through this time and time again. How is this any different? But it's not just another legal encounter, as I hope we will see. Paul's run in with the Corinthian proconsul, and that's the the proconsul is the person charged by Rome to to take care of one of the provinces. So he was charged by Rome to take care of Achaia, the province of Achaia. And the proconsul, Paul's run-in with this proconsul may seem like a small event, like hating cats, like forgetting the key to the binocular locker. Binocular, have you ever tried to say binocular locker? Um, or washing a pair of dirty underwear. All of these, they seem like inconsequential events. But the ramifications that followed were enormous for Paul and for the burgeoning new community of believers in a crucially important little corner of the Roman Empire, Achaia. So let's read Acts eighteen nine to 17 and we did read this last week, so it'll be very familiar. Um, we looked at it when we were discussing um, sources of encouragement for a lonely apostle, Paul, in a corrupt and sinful city. So, this is starting in verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, well, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. Then they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court. But Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. So, <clears throat> seems like another, just another one of these, just another persecution event. But I, I think there's more to it here. Last week we saw Paul seeking to persuade the Jewish people in the synagogue. And when they harshly abused Paul, perhaps one... One um, commentary I read suggested they, they probably grabbed him and whipped him the 39 times. Um, after that, he stood up and shook the faithless dust of their coming judgment off his bloodied clothes and went next door where he hoped crowds of Gentiles would arrive to hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. And arrive, they did. They came in flocks. Um, now that Paul was no longer in the synagogue, but rather in the house of Gaius, Titius Justus, Gentiles felt more free and welcome to come and hear this powerful new teacher. They weren't really welcome in the synagogue, at least not, they weren't encouraged to be participants in the synagogue, but now that Paul wasn't in the synagogue, they came in flocks and droves. Dozens, perhaps even hundreds, poured into the spacious courtyard of Gaius' large household to learn of a new servant savior. But Paul had seen this drama before. In fact, it was cyclical. First, he would pronounce the resurrected Christ to the Jews in the synagogue. Then, the Jews would reject him, so he would turn to the Gentiles. Then, the Gentiles would gobble this message up, blossoming and spreading and thriving. Then, this would fill the Jews up with rage and envy, and they would come for Paul's head. And finally, Paul would be forced to flee to the next city to start the cycle all over again. Now, if this was the cycle that you were in, I mean, there's tremendous success here. There are victories. People are being saved and coming to know Jesus. but If this was you, and city after city after city after city after city, this is the pattern that you're forced into, wouldn't that weigh on you a little bit? Wouldn't that get to you? But by the time, okay, so the Jews have rejected Jesus, which is grief enough, so he goes to the Gentiles, and although they're accepting him and and hundreds are coming to know him, you would have that pit of despair in your stomach that you know what's coming next. You know either you're going to be beaten, stoned, flogged, or dragged to court, forced to defend yourself um, in front of a bunch of Gentiles who couldn't care less. If you knew that was going to happen, wouldn't that discourage you? Wouldn't that get you down? Wouldn't that make you a little despondent? Despite the tremendous success in the house of Titius Justice, Paul became exactly that, depressed and despondent. Paul had this sort of history of depression in him. He was a very emotional guy. And he knew what would happen next. He was in need of a big shot of hope, even bigger than the hope that came with the arrival of Silas and Timothy, bearing good news that, hey, the Thessalonians, Thessalonians and the the uh, Philippians, they're thriving. They're doing great. And Paul had been worried about them. So that was a shot of hope. But he needed even more hope, even more hope than the bonding he he had with his new friends, Priscilla and Aquila. He needed more. He was in need of encouragement of a divine nature. That's exactly what he received. The most encouraging thing that happened to Paul when he found himself in such a dark and lonely place was a vision from Jesus. Urging him, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking boldly for Jesus himself was alongside Paul. Not only Jesus, but many people in the city would be there to support and encourage Paul. Jesus had many people in the city, so don't be afraid. Speak up. Nobody will harm you. This was the fuel Paul needed to remain strong in Sin City, preaching and teaching for another 18 months in and around Corinth. Do not be afraid. Keep proclaiming me. I am with you, and I have many people here with you as well. Last week we looked at maybe you've had events like this in your life, that shot of encouragement from other people, from the Word of God, that spurs you on to keep going. A Tara shared one just this morning. Um, we need those, moments. and Paul did too. And so he spent the next 18 months preaching and teaching, uh, fueled by that encouragement from Jesus. We don't know many details about Paul's time over the course of the next year and a half, during those 18 months. But Luke intentionally focuses on one critical moment in that period of time when Jesus' encouragement to Paul would be put to the test. So he spends these 18 months in Corinth. From his letters to the Corinthians, we know the Corinthians were a bunch of characters. I'm sure, I'm sure Luke could have written an entire book just on Paul's stay in Corinth. There are a bunch of idol worshippers, a bunch of prostitutes, a bunch of deviant, former deviants coming together trying to grow in Jesus. I'm sure there were all kinds of stories that Luke could have told, but he focuses instead on this one story where, where Jesus' encouragement to Paul was put to the test. Jesus had promised that no one would harm Paul through an attack. But that doesn't mean no attack would be attempted. An attack is attempted. Here in Acts 18, as was so often the case, the attack came once again from his own people, the Jews of Corinth. The cycle that Paul had feared was falling into place. It was happening. The local Jewish leaders had had enough of all these former idol worshippers and slaves and temple prostitutes joining once respectable members of their own synagogue who had defected to this little cultic group of, who are these people anyway? They get together in Titius Justice's house, eating their bread, drinking their wine, saying they're consuming the body and blood of a man, singing and celebrating early in the morning, late at night, selling their homes to care for worthless beggars, and all the while turning their praise from Almighty God to that charlatan carpenter from Nazareth who went by the unbelievable titles of Risen Lord and Son of God. Who are these people? Who do they think they are? Those filthy Christians. They received all the protection of Roman law that the Jews themselves received as a legitimate religion. See, there was such a thing as an illegitimate religion in Rome. And if you followed those illegitimate religions, usually had to do with trying to usurp Rome, then you would be crushed by Rome. But the Jews, they were protected from that for the time being. For about another 12 years, they would be. And the Christians, they were riding the coattails of that protection. But to the Jews who saw all these Christians next door and they hated them, they were sick of them riding that protection. They didn't want them to have that protection anymore because to the Jews, Christianity was nothing like Judaism. It was completely separate. The Christians were not a branch of Israel. They were a cancerous growth that needed to be surgically removed by Roman authority, lest it continue to grow and spread its diseased worship and impure community. That's what the Jews were thinking. It was all too much. Something had to be done about this virus, this nuisance. And in the summer of AD 51, the antagonizing Jews of Corinth saw their opportunity. Gallio was appointed by Rome as the proconsul of Achaia. But who was this Gallio fella? We actually know quite a bit about him. There's lots of historical records about him. We know he was appointed in 51 AD, the summer of 51 AD. We know that he was the son of Seneca the Elder, who was a famous Tiberian speaker, very well-known. And he was the brother of the younger Seneca, Seneca Jr., a famous Stoic philosopher and a personal favorite of the emperor at the time, Claudius. All of Gallio's contemporaries in the elite of Roman society spoke glowingly of Gallio. He was well-liked and very famous. His brother Seneca once said that no mortal is so pleasant to any one person as Gallio is to everybody. Is that the impression you got from this story in Acts? Super pleasant guy. He watches a beating happen and doesn't do anything about it. But that's the reputation he had. He was very pleasant, very favorable, very fair. And he was kind to everyone. That's the reputation that the Jews of Corinth had put their hope in. That their newly appointed Roman leader would look upon them favorably, pleasantly, and rule in their favor, eliminating those cancerous Christians once and for all. And so, one late summer afternoon, the Jews of the city grabbed Paul and rushed him to the Bema, which was like this, this raised platform in the middle of the courtyard where judgment would happen in the center of town, where, where Gallio was sitting. Their accusation was that the message Paul preached was totally contrary to their own traditional Jewish law. So much so that Paul and his people are not to be seen as Jewish in any way, and therefore didn't deserve any of the rights and legal protection that Jews were afforded as a legitimate religion in Rome. The Jewish leaders had made their case before the highest Roman authority available to them. They went as high up the chain as they could, trying to say, "Look, these people—they're nothing like us. Don't protect them. We don't like them, and if we don't like them, Rome, you shouldn't like them either. Get rid of them." That's their accusation. Paul who is sitting here listening to all this, meanwhile, stands up to begin to defend himself. He opens his mouth and raises a finger, but before he could speak, Gallio speaks instead. And here's where the story goes from just another legal matter involving Paul and the Christians to an enormously significant event that hinged on one small, seemingly inconsequential decision. You don't get the impression that Gallio thought very much about what he's about to say, Right? He just goes, enough, enough. I don't care about any of this. It's all your words and your customs. I don't care. I'm not making any decision about this. But that seemingly toss-off decision had huge consequences. See, Paul had been on trial before, as I mentioned, in Philippi and Thessalonica. But this was not some mid-level city in backcountry Macedonia. This was one of the three most powerful, wealthy, and significant cities in the entire Roman Empire. This was Corinth. And in Corinth ruled a proconsul whose father was friends with the emperor and whose brother had a seat of influence on the imperial court. Whatever ruling was made by Gallio, the most politically powerful man in Corinth, would be shared and spread to neighboring Roman provinces like Macedonia and Galatia and Cyprus and to neighboring cities of influence like Athens and Ephesus and Rome itself. Whatever came next out of the mouth of Gallio would set legal precedent for the treatment of Christians for the foreseeable future, perhaps decades or more. If he ruled with the Jews, in favor of the Jews, that the Christians were an illegitimate religious offshoot of Judaism, then Paul and his fellow Jesus followers could be hunted, persecuted, imprisoned, and exterminated by Rome. If that's what he decided, that would set the precedent for the whole region and possibly the whole empire. He was a man of tremendous influence. If, however, Gallio disagreed with the Jewish leaders, then Christianity would receive the stamp of approval, the favor and protection of Roman legitimacy. Paul and his companions would have legal precedent to freely travel throughout the Roman colonies preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ without fear of imminent oppression from either Jews or Gentiles. The ruling of Gallio could be the missing binocular key or the dirty underwear that led to disaster, or it could be the last major source of hope for a frequently discouraged apostle in Corinth. Which would it be? Well, we already read it, so you know what it'll be. As fate would have it, or more accurately, as the Holy Spirit would have it, as Paul rose to speak, he wouldn't even have an opportunity to utter a word of defense. Remember what Jesus had said? Don't be afraid. Speak up. Paul tries to do that before he can, Gallio speaks up. And Gallio speaks, um, kind of dismissively, but he's, he's, he offers a, a defense to the Christians, all the defense they would need, in fact, for the next decade plus, before the protection of Rome dissolved into outright persecution by Rome of the Christians. But you know what happened in those 10, 12 years between Gallio's decision and, and Nero's decision to crush Christians? Paul went all over the place all over the place. To Gallio, this wasn't a matter that required Roman interference, as no Roman statute had been broken. It seemed to him a matter of discrepancy between religious words and Jewish customs, a small deal that he didn't care about. It was an issue that they could deal with by themselves. But by this small, seemingly inconsequential legal legal declaration that he would not be a judge of such things, Gallio inadvertently allowed the gospel of Jesus to be spread unhindered by Paul and his friends from Corinth and the surrounding area, and the sphere just kept getting bigger and bigger. Um, and next week, we'll see Paul go to the next major city, Ephesus, which wasn't quite as big or quite as influential as Corinth, but it was a big deal. And he went there fueled by the freedom that he had by this decision by Gallio. Um, and eventually, Paul would set his sights on the big all of itself, Rome. They were protected by the most unlikely of mother hens, the throne of the emperor. They were protected by Rome, which is not how we generally see the church. But for this period of time, thanks to Gallio, it was. And Paul and others made tremendous use of that freedom. They went all over the place. For more than a decade, wherever they went, thanks to Gallio, they could pro- proclaim Jesus as Lord without fear that the Lord Caesar would punish them for their belief. It was not what their Jewish enemies intended. But out of that small legal ruling came beautiful, meaningful, lasting consequences for those who follow Jesus. One more small thing before I finish up. The story ends with the beating of Sosthenes, which is a sad story. Sosthenes was the synagogue leader um, who replaced Crispus. Crispus had been convinced by Paul, became a Christian, and Crispus was now a leader in the Corinthian church in the house of Titius Justus. But when Crispus was gone, Sosthenes was the man who replaced him. Um, Sosthenes is an interesting character because when we first meet him here in verse 17 when the crowd turns on Sosthenes and beats him because they can't beat Paul we don't know where Sosthenes stands at the moment we don't know if Sosthenes was a Christian or a Jew at the time of his beating well I mean he was a Jew regardless but we don't know if he was a Christian yet or, or still the Jewish synagogue leader but what we do know is this Paul wrote at least two letters to these Christians in Corinth. We call them 1st and 2nd Corinthians. We call the first letter 1st Corinthians. And the very first verse of 1st Corinthians, 1st Corinthians 1, 1 says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and our brother, want to guess the name that follows? Sosthenes. Isn't that interesting? A letter to the Corinthians Mentioning the same name as the man who was beaten at the Corinthian trial. Sosthenes. We don't know if it's the same Sosthenes, but I don't think it's too big of a stretch to imagine that Luke would mention the name of a man who eventually became a co-writer, co-author, companion of Paul. That would make sense. So this means that in verse 17, one of two things happens. Perhaps the crowd who did the beating was a Jewish crowd who had just been told by Gallio to settle these matters themselves, and so they take matters into their own hands, and they beat their converted Christian synagogue leader in front of Gallio, taking matters into their own hands, which would explain why Gallio does nothing, because he saw them as Jews carrying out discipline on fellow Jews under his guidance. So it could be that Sosthenes is already a Christian, and the Jews, since they can't beat Paul, they say, well, we'll deal with our own in-house punishment, and they beat up Sosthenes for having converted that's possible, or I think it's something else. I think that the crowd who did the beating was a Gentile crowd, not a Jewish crowd, who had just seen the local Jewish leaders being rebuffed by their Roman proconsul, dismissed, and took the opportunity to carry out one of the most favorite pastimes in the European continent of the past 2,000 years, and that is anti-Semitism. They saw that Gallio ruled against the Jews, and so they seized that opportunity to punish the Jews a little further in the in the form of Sosthenes the synagogue leader the most prominent face of Judaism in that city the reason I like that it's not that I like that <laughs> it's the wrong wording but the reason i I hope that's the story is because that would mean Sosthenes was a Jew at the time of the beating but his beating was the thing that convinced him to turn to Jesus and become a companion of Paul even a fellow writing partner to his hometown brothers and sisters in Corinth I like to think that for Sosthenes, the trial of Paul was the crucial moment that had long-term beneficial consequences for him. It wasn't a small thing, like missing a locker key or hating cats. It was a big thing, being beaten in public for who you are. That's a big thing. But I like to think that eternal benefits came to Sosthenes when he saw the, the, the vileness of the people and the grace and the love of Paul and his Christian companions. I mean, it could be either of those things. Who knows? But that that second one, I think, is is the point of my message for us today. In our lives, we've already encountered many of these small moments and decisions that have enormous consequences. I want to think less of the disastrous examples of black cats and missing locker keys and dirty underwear, and more along the lines of Paul and Sosthenes. The ruling of Gallio inadvertently fanned the flames of the gospel from one major city to the next, creating sparks in the lives of thousands of men and women that even when Gallio's verdict was reversed and Rome became an enemy, it's Rome could not quench the fires that had already been started. Christianity continued to flourish and spread. One small legal ruling had eternal consequences for thousands, perhaps millions and billions through the spread of of that 10, 12-year spread of the gospel throughout Achaia and the Roman Empire. That's how good the will of our caring God is. No small decision is ever wasted by God. No event is ever overlooked by him. In his care and in his providence, he is able to use the tiniest moments to solidify our faith and the consequences can be transformative. So I want us to take a minute in conclusion to do a brief exercise. As we leave, I want us to consider two questions. Number one, what small moments and events have been beneficial and transformative, have had beneficial and transformative consequences for your faith in the past? What are some small decisions that you look back now and you see that was God at work? That was God doing something big out of something small. You can consider that. Number two, what ways can I be more mindful of how he is using small moments and events, both positive and negative, to shape me right now? How can I be more mindful of how he is at work in me right now? How can I pay more attention to, in both the good and the bad, the ways he is shaping me become more like him? If such diverse tools as cats and locker keys and underwear and ancient Corinthian legal dismissals can alter the course of history, then he is able to use small things in you to change the direction of your life as well. I think it would do us well to pay attention to those small things and give him the praise and honor that he deserves for them. Let's pray. Again, God, you are good, and in all things, you are able to do good for those who love you. If it's in pain and suffering, like what um, Paul repeatedly experienced, like Sosthenes experiences, if it's pain and suffering, you are able to bring good and and bring life out of those things. If it's in um, tremendous blessing and unforeseen good consequences from small events, God, then we praise you and thank you. We know that you are able to do great things um, out of small things. You're able to do great things out of us, even though we're small. And in our lives, you're able to do great things um, out of seemingly inconsequential events. The smaller the person, the smaller the event, the bigger the consequences can be in your mustard seed kingdom. And I pray that we would be mindful of those things, that we would give you praise for them. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, have a great day. Someone special in your life. Mother said, can't always keep that spare pair of clean underwear.